Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today's episode, we have a very special guest. He is a frequent guest of this podcast, but we have some great announcements and a great discussion coming up. My guest is Dr. David Hanscom, spine surgeon extraordinaire, the only spine surgeon I would ever go see if I was concerned about my own back or what recommend for my friends and family members. Dr. Hanscom, it's glad, good to have you back on the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah. I love being on the podcast. Well, and, and I wanted you to come back on because you have written what I think is one of the most important books when it comes to back pain, and particularly about back pain and surgery, and that is, do you really need spine surgery? Take control with the uh, surgeon's advice. And I, this just came out, so we're recording December 2nd of 2019, and this just came out at the end of October, I believe. Is that correct? Right. And... um. As I as I said, I I think this is one of the most important books written when it comes to people with back pain, and certainly when it comes to making surgical decisions. But how did you, or should why did you write this book? What happened in two thousand six? I was asked to give a presentation at the North American Spine Society in Austin, Texas. And they wanted me to present the decision making process around spine surgery. What evolved with this decision making grid? And the first thing that came up was, well, does a person have something that's amenable to surgery or not? And there's a tremendous amount of surgery, as you well know, that's being done on normal spines. And so my first thing was, well, okay, if you can see the problem, and the symptoms match, that's surgical or potentially surgical. If you can't see the problem, of course, it's not surgical. So that was the first part of my thinking. And then the data also shows, as you have, have taught me, as well as all taught both of us, others have taught both of us, that if your nervous system's fired up and what I call hypervigilant or stressed, the data shows that if you do surgery in the presence of untreated chronic pain, that there's a high chance of making you worse after the surgery. Then the data also shows that only 10% of surgeons are actually acknowledging that data before they do surgery. So my goal is to first of all, identify the, whether the problem was even surgical or not. The second goal was, well, if somebody has a, a fired up nervous system, just calm it down. So what emerged was a grid of four quadrants of structural calm, structural stressed, non-structural calm, structural, non-structural stressed. And so I'm not against surgery at all, but I'm really against surgery in the presence of a normal spine for your age and a stressed nervous system. The success rate is it, it's gotta be less than 10%. I know it's less than 25%, but essentially when you do surgery on a normal spine with a stressed nervous system, it doesn't work. I would ask you, and I think you would agree with me, that I think that maybe most spine surgery right now is being done on people with relatively normal spines and stressed nervous systems. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, I, I would completely agree. I would completely agree. But before it, before we get a little bit further here, I, I, um, I know, and I should have said this earlier, but some people listening to this podcast may not know you, and they may be going, oh, well, who is this Dr. Hanscom to talk about spine surgery? So could you give a little brief bit of your background on why you're why you're qualified to write this book well first of all i'm a spine surgeon i'm an orthopedic <laughs> spine surgeon i went to minneapolis minnesota which was considered one of the top three spine fellowships in the world at the time i was seattle's complex spine surgeon for 30 years and i was one of them maybe five that took care of the worst cases in seattle i was known as the salvage guy but i also went through a horrible episode of chronic pain myself for about 15 years and out of that process i came out of chronic pain by accident, didn't really know how I came out of it. I now know, understand, I now understand based on neuroscience research why it happened and how I came out of it. But at the time I didn't get it, 
So a process evolved based on my experience and others about how to actually solve chronic pain. I started watching hundreds, I say hundreds of patients go to pain-free with essentially no risk, no surgery, some requiring surgery. And I'm watching an endless number of surgeries to be done on normal spines. Then they would come to me to try to salvage the problem. When they had prior surgeries, it became extremely difficult to get them back to normal. I could improve them a lot, but the surgeries were just a disaster. And what people don't understand with failed spine surgery, things are worse. And I think you'd agree with that also from your pain perspective. I, I, I think fa failed surgery for anything, things are generally worse. We have to worry about, you know, scar tissue, every, you know, everything else that's associated with it. But right. what I want to kind of emphasize here for the listeners is, um, and what I think is really important for people to understand about your background is not only were you a spine surgeon, you're one of the top spine surgeons, I would say, in the nation for sure. And when other spine surgeons are referring their toughest patients to you, that gives you a perspective, I think, that very few people have. Right. And the other part about that was when we're talking about these salvage operations, because people say, well, he's still operating. Um, you know, some of the details that you have told me about, these were people who couldn't walk anymore. They had to have assisted devices. And what you were basically trying to do is restore their anatomy so that they can right. have a semblance of a normal life Correct. and activity level again. Right. And through that process, you were telling me um, that how many, how many spines, how many people were coming in for these salvage operations that you were looking at the original MRIs or imaging studies for and were appropriate to have the first surgery in the first place? When it came to failed back surgery, I would say almost everybody we look at the original MRI scans had relatively normal spines. <clears throat> Most people just did not need that first operation. They just didn't need it. I mean, I had one gentleman who was one of my favorite patients, but he had his first spine fusion when he was 30. He had appropriate lumbar discectomy for sciatica. That went well. Then he developed back pain. They did a one-level fusion, broke down above, another fusion, broke down above and below, another fusion, infected. Anyway, the bottom line is over 20 years, he had 29 surgeries. He's now fused from the base of his neck all the way to his pelvis. And, he's on, and he just didn't need that first fusion. So, I mean, literally, he's the nicest guy, fantastic family. He's a liar. His entire life has essentially been taken away by multiple spine surgeries. But his story's not that uncommon. I mean, his story's extreme because of the number of surgeries, but we see an endless number of patients who've had their lives really taken away from them from surgeries being done that began with normal spines. And for that, I mean, I guess that's the, the hard part, and we often will dance around that, is, I, I mean, I remember watching a, a podcast, I think it was from PCORI, PCORI, which I think mm -hmm. is an evidence-based kind of review committee, and they were estimating that over 90% of spine surgeries in the United States were inappropriate or were done for inappropriate reasons. Um, yeah, I did. I say most. I've, I've been saying. I said. I've been saying seventy percent for a while. I just think the vast majority shouldn't be done. And it, I mean, my. So what happened with me is I became more and more conservative. Even my surgical patients with common down the nervous system would cancel their surgeries. I had over hundred patients with very tight bone spurs, pinching nerves, leg pain, the whole thing. They were surgical candidates. They were on the schedule. I simply followed the data, which says take care of patients first before you do the surgery. And with my deformity patients, I would do this rehab process for up to a year or two before I did the surgery. Rehab is better, pain control is better, outcomes are better, but many people just simply get better without the surgery. My 
percentage rate of converting people to surgery. Out of 100 patients I saw in the office that came to me for surgical evaluations, only four and a half of only four and a half percent of them went to surgery. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and that would you would think in a in a sane world, a surgeon who is sparing 96 out of 100 patients from surgery and getting them better, uh, well, you would think that that would be applauded <laughs> and and appreciated and. Uh, everything would be wonderful in your surgical practice, but uh, we have several podcasts on why that's not the case, so we don't have to necessarily go into in the background there. But what I really like about this particular book is that people there are some people that surgery is still appropriate for, Correct. not not as many, but right. that there but people are saying, well, what do I do? And when you and you mentioned the grid and what the treatment grid is is if you get do you really need spine surgery? Take a control, take control with a spine surgeon advice. The first mention of I see it is on page six and it's this beautiful, very, very simple grid that basically tells you in, in, you know, a very simple framework of when surgery might be appropriate. I mean, it, there's right. still doesn't mean it is appropriate, but it, it might, the, the best case categories there is in that, uh, what we would call type one, a, I'm in. Um, so why not? So you, you talked about that you did this presentation in 2006. How did you get this treatment grid? How what was the thought process there? Yeah, and it's very simple. Basically, if you're living life with, with the usual stresses, coping reasonably well. Of course, none of us cope that well a lot of the time. But in general, if you're living life as usual, no unusual circumstances, and you have a ruptured disc with matching leg pain, that's a very straight, straightforward what we call a structural problem. If you, have, if you do a simple disectomy for that particular situation, why the results are almost 100%. In fact, I used to tease my fellows about when's the last time you saw a surgical failure in my clinic, because we didn't. But our selection process became so precise, they were able to really predict very clearly who's going to do well and not do well. Now, let's say you have a ruptured disc, structural problem, matching symptoms, and surgery is indicated. Let's say you go through a divorce, or lost your job, or your boss is giving you a hard time. And you're in a lot of stress more than usual. What happens is that same pain that ordinarily you would tolerate reasonably well now becomes intolerable for two reasons. One of them, your body chemistry is off. Your stress chemicals are elevated, which increases nerve conduction. So you feel the pain more. And of course, you don't cope as well. So what we found out is that if we just wait the 8 to 12 weeks using aggressive pain control, calming people down, sleep, writing exercises, et cetera, that if we went from a... That's this a one B quarter, by the way. B is stressed, A is calm. But you go into this one B category, what you want to do is you take the structural situation that's stress, calm people down. Now we're in the one A non-stress category. Results are fine. If you do surgery without calming down the nervous system, the results are all over the map. Some people are better. Some people are worse. Some people are way worse. Some people are the same. And that, was, that is what used to really perplex me years ago that had this very tight stenosis. I knew people under stress. I think most surgeons think like I used to think that if you do surgery, somebody who's stressed, and the surgery goes really, really well, that the pain relief would be so dramatic that actually people move on to a normal life and the stress goes away. Not true. Mm -hmm. The other stresses are still there. The nervous system is still fired up. But it actually compromises the actual outcome you're trying to accomplish. So not only does the pain not go away, People's stress is the same, and it's worse because they, they had their hopes up. Their hopes are dashed. What do they do next? 
So it becomes a fairly desperate situation, which actually disappeared from my practice the last five years because we just went to surgery without helping people get through the whole stress of the situation. So 1A, you are structural problem, calm, surgery works beautifully. 1B, you have a structural problem amenable to surgery and you're stressed. As we calm you down, surgery still may be indicated, but it's much more successful. The category I'm really focused on are the type two patients who have essentially normal spines for their age. We call it type two or non-structural, where let's say you have back pain, you're coping with life stresses, you're relatively calm. You're not gonna push for surgery. I mean, how much pain would you have, Kevin, before you would have back surgery? I would never do back surgery for pain, <laughs> period. Right, and, and I think most people, and even my patients who don't have a medical background, they might be high level businessmen or professors or even laborers, whatever, whatever it is, when you're out there working away and you have pain, it's just pain. You can sort of deal with it, move on, and eventually goes away. So the 2A group, non-structural, not particularly stressed, do just fine. They're not, they're not even asking for surgery. Even then, surgeons are pushing surgery. The group that's getting the most surgery by far is really called the 2B groups. They have a non-structural problem, just simple disc degeneration, which is normal for your age. And they're under extreme stress, often a worker's comp, disability, family losses, et cetera. And the reason they actually push for surgery because they're miserable, their anxiety levels are high, their pain levels are high. And the surgeon walks into the room and says, I can take care of you. Well, as you know, they're extraordinarily vulnerable to surgical interventions. The success rate in that group is probably less than 10%, if even that. There's a high chance of making them worse. That's the 2B group. So in the 2B group, surgery is not a choice. In structured rehab, people do fine. When you do surgery in the 2B group, the chances of making it worse are so high. And when people get worse, it's a lot worse. But again, that's the group that gets the most surgery on basically normal spines, highly stressed, looking for an answer. And in the surgeon's defense is that that's what we're trained to do. I spent eight years being one of those surgeons who felt guilty if I couldn't find a reason to do surgery. So I have been on both sides of this fence. I did dozens of fusions for back pain. And as you know, you've heard my lectures and you know the literature is that the success rate of a fusion for back pain is about 22 to 25%. That's it. Then I also wrote a website post called the Surgical Scrap Heap, where if you have a failed surgery, then nobody takes care of you. Your surgeon says, well, I try my best, have a good life. Other surgeons do not want to take, a, take on other surgeons' patients, or they might offer more surgery. The primary care physician feels overwhelmed. The pain specialists are overwhelmed. And nobody really wants to manage people's pain, especially after they've had spine surgery. So I wrote a website post called The Surgical Scrap Heap. So the addition, the tragedy in not having your spine pain solved nobody wants to take care of you. So you feel abandoned. And of course you're really frustrated and angry, which as you know, makes your pain worse. And we are really hurting people in our society at a very high rate. And we're not only making them worse, we're making them a lot worse. And the tragedy is that the solution to chronic pain is simple, no risk, minimal cost. The surgical results are very poor, high cost, high risk. You're taking a lot of people, hardworking, well-intentioned well people who do extremely well with rehab. You do an operation on them and you can still do rehab after that surgery, but it's not as good. And you'll never get the same result with rehab that you had, would have had if you never had had the surgery. So I always felt the best if I, take, if I had somebody come in to me who had surgery recommended on a normal spine, 
We sit down and talk to them. We put them through the rehab program. And usually about three, six months, people get better. So it takes somebody that actually prevented the surgery. In my mind, it's almost as good as actually doing a successful surgery. But yeah, it's, it's very rewarding to watch somebody who has no hope to get better without surgery. That's what we're here for. Well, well, I would, you know, that that comes back to the primary purposes. Most of us went into healthcare, whatever our roles, because we wanted to help people get better. Right. And that should be the ultimate goal. And again, we've talked on other podcasts why that doesn't seem to work because you don't right. get paid if people get better. You get paid to do spine surgery. The Hippocratic oath never said that you do the right thing because you get paid to do it that way. That's <laughs> never been the way it's supposed to be. And I, it's I really thought it was the updated because, version said that, did We're just flat out hiding behind the, we <laughs> hide behind the Hippocratic oath because everybody talks about first do no harm. We're giving it lip service and we flat out aren't honoring that oath. So I, I don't sound too altruistic here. I mean, this is what we're supposed to do. This is why we went into medicine. This is the oath we took. It's our job to do it this way. That's our job. Well, and that's what you would do for your friends and family members. Right. Yeah, or that's, and that's, I think that's the most important part about all this. Now, I, you know, I, I want to go touch on that, um, that 2B category, which again, that 2B category. And if you want a, a copy of this grid, folks, you, I would highly recommend that you get the book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Again, that's available at Amazon. You can go to Dr. Hanscom's website. That's backincontrol.com, where he has free guides, including the spine surgery grid. And then you can also go to straightshothealth.com forward slash grid, and you can get a copy of the grid itself uh, as a reference. But that 2B category, which is the one where we're talking about people getting operated on who should not be operating on, that's when they have what would say a non-structural contribution and a stressed nervous system. That part, I think, can be a little bit tricky because as you and I know, Disc degeneration is not a structural, uh, it's some a structural cause that we would say that people need to be operated on, but there are surgeons and there are physicians and there you know there's primary care people that will say, well, you have disc degeneration, go see the spine surgeon, and so that that is a tricky scenario because you're asking. I guess in some situations the are the people out there who are listening to this they have to have a little bit of a basic idea between what is structural and what is non-structural because they may not get the best information when they're going into somebody's office. Right. Well, that's what the book is supposed to do. So the first part of the book gets you onto the grid, just in ballpark terms. Then the last two chapters in the appendix takes your specific diagnosis because every diagnosis, every diagnosis can be structural or non-structural. Which is ironic. So structural means you have an identifiable lesion with symptoms that match. The problem with degeneration, we don't know where back pain comes from 90% of the time. What's ironic, there is deep literature showing that disc degeneration does not cause back pain. Bone spurs, arthritis, facet arthritis, disc degeneration, collapsed disc, bulging disc, herniated disc, none of those cause back pain. That's been well documented, as you well know. So we know where the back pain doesn't come from. Back pain is very nonspecific, vague symptom. We actually don't know where it comes from. It could be muscles, tendons, ligaments. could be the disc. I mean, whatever it is, we just don't know where it's coming from. So a structural problem has to have an identifiable lesion with matching symptoms. With back pain, you don't have an identifiable lesion. In fact, again, what we call disease is actually just degeneration in a normally aging spine. And you don't have matching symptoms because back pain is, is vague. 
The only time back pain is structural, let's talk about low back pain just to keep it simple. If you have tumor or infection, obviously those are structural problems. We have a broken vertebrae like an osteoporosis, compression fracture, or a fracture. Those are structural problems. The only time degeneration relates to structural problems, sometimes the spine is really what we call unstable. So when, when you bend forwards and backwards, the spine slips back and forth on each other about three or four millimeters. That's considered structural and a probable source of back pain that I would not argue with. I will say rehab many patients without surgery with that degree of instability. But nonetheless, that would be that's the only consideration that you would consider back pain to be a structural problem. So again, we know disc degeneration is not a problem. We also know stuff like, for instance, lack of sleep actually causes back pain. A study out of Israel shows that lack of sleep actually induces chronic back pain. So even simple questions like, how are you sleeping? Those questions aren't being asked. And we, we know when you actually improve sleep, we improve back pain. So again, lots of simple things to be done before you jump into surgery. And again, I'll say this again, the success rate of your back fusion for back pain is about 22 to 25%. And then the downside is actually 35 to 45%, which is actually higher. The chance of making you worse is higher than the chance of actually making you better. It doesn't make any sense to take a body with nice layers of tendons, ligaments, soft tissues, and turn them into a mass of scar tissue, bone, and steel rods and think that's going to make you better. It's not even logical to think that thought. Well, and you wouldn't do that if it was your car. If no. the mechanic said, hey, if we do this thing, it's more likely that your engine's going to blow up than actually work. Nobody right. would have that done. Correct. And yet we do that in medicine, and we you know, certainly do it in spine surgery every single day, right. um, which is ex you know, it's ex extraordinarily distressing, to, to say the least. But I want you know, to touch on this. Uh, uh, what, you know, one of the key things that you were talking about with these the structural versus non-structural again is this idea of symptomatology so you can because the other part is you can have a, a disc herniation but if a disc herniation if you're is inconsistent with where you're even with shooting pain down your leg if it's inconsistent with that distribution right you shouldn't have the surgery done right so right but Kevin, I don't want to spend too much time this is actually probably subject to another podcast maybe you want to talk to a total joint surgeon but is happening all over the body. I mean, cardiac surgeons are putting cardiac stents. Um, right now, total hips and total knees are being done on relatively normal knees and hips without any rehab at all. So the whole medical culture has become extraordinarily aggressive for doing procedures. And I see that article by Dr. Jonas on how they documented that any procedure done in the presence of chronic pain doesn't work. Did I send, did I send you that article? Uh, I, yes, you did. There, there's a paper out in the last month, the Journal of Pain, that shows that every procedure, it was a very well done, huge review study looking at sham surgeries versus regular surgery. They showed that every surgical intervention for knee pain and spine pain has been documented to be ineffective. Every one of them. And the problem is with chronic pain, it's a memorized set of circuits. It's like phantom limb pain, which can occur in, in any part of the body. And you can't really do more surgery, for instance, in phantom limb pain on a leg that isn't there. It doesn't make any sense. So the whole culture medicine is geared towards procedures and it's been well-documented in multiple papers, multiple different fields, multiple different arenas. It doesn't work. Procedures for chronic pain don't work. 
and and that that kind of brings back to you know you made that comment earlier and i i you know, people may not again if they're a new listener they would may not understand why i said this but you said well when when do you have back surgery and i said i would never have back surgery done for pain Right. And, and the reason I wouldn't have back surgery done for pain is because if the primary condition for which I'm being treated is pain, then it makes no sense to have back surgery because there are multiple contributors that come into that constructive process. Right. When you would have a surgery, and if you have a leg, you know, a knee replacement or, or anything, is when there is a primary concern that pain may be associated with but if the you know when i'm talking to physicians i'm like well how do you know when you're supposed to do surgery is if you if whether or not the person's experiencing pain you would do the surgery and that's you know it's i just can't i don't know how to make it any more clear than that because if you had somebody has an infected spine whether or not they had pain you would want to go in and debride it and and irrigate it and put antibiotic pledgets in there and you would do that whether or not they had pain correct but you wouldn't want to chop someone's leg off if you had horrible leg pain if there wasn't a broken bone or an, inf an infection in the bone or, or cancer in the bone or anything else. You, so you don't, we don't do surgeries or procedures. Well, I should say we do surgeries and procedures for pain, but we really shouldn't be doing them for pain. We should be doing them for those other things that can be associated with pain. Well, l listen to this one. This is a very dark study, which I've now sent to you. But there's a surgeon probably 20 years ago that took a series of patients with arm pain only, completely normal arms, zero wrong with them, totally normally functioning arms. They had arm pain and he amputated 15 arms. Oh my Lord. Guess what happened? They're, they didn't get better. No. Two, two, <laughs> of the, two of the 13, two of the 15 got better. 13 of them had the same pain or worse, <sighs> but they amputated the arm, normal arm, and I think people, and I feel bad for the patients in pain because guess what? I realize that nobody believes you, including the doctors. The pain is there, so there must be something wrong. Um, there's a Dr. Abkarian who came up to Seattle a few weeks ago who talked, about, talked to us about the neuroscience of chronic pain. And it's an inflammation of the nervous system. The nerves get cross-wired. They short circuit. They hurt like heck. And it's a nervous system problem. It's not an anatomical structural problem. So even if the original problem was structural and you can actually see the source, within about six to 12 months, the brain memorizes that pain. The brain gets inflamed. All sorts of things happen in the nervous system. So chronic pain is a nervous system issue and it's not a peripheral issue. That's why none of the procedures we do in the presence of chronic pain work because that's not where the problem is. And I know I'm speaking to one of the gurus here about how chronic pain works and I've learned a lot from you but it's so clear that if without a brain, without a nervous system, you would not have pain. Your brain has to interpret all this sensory input and decide whether something, something is dangerous or not. And if it says dangerous, it's gonna turn on the, the danger, anxiety, pain switch. If it's safe, it's not gonna happen. That's all in the nervous system. So anyway, this is stunning study. These are dead normal arms and they underwent amputation of course without essentially no success. Unbelievable. Every every time I think I can't, my <laughs> I, I've heard it all. Something comes up where I'm like, I cannot believe that they're. Uh, oh, I'm unbelievable. Uh, I'll send you this paper, Kevin. It's pretty pretty sobering. Yeah, and and I guess people, and this is a, the difficult part, and it's frustrating. I think for everybody, is 
when you're the one who's experiencing pain, whether it's persistent or acute, the last thing that you want to be is abandoned. And unfortunately, right. these myths and misconceptions about pain interfere with all levels. Right. But I guess one way to say if, if you are in love with somebody, that is a, a very real sensory and emotional experience. Your whole body infuses, your heart beats faster, you have blood flow to different parts of your body. That's 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 a very real experience and has physiological components to it. And I don't think anybody would 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 argue with that. But right. if you weren't in love with your spouse, no one would recommend that you get a heart transplant <laughs> and assume that True. that's going to make a big difference here. And right. I, and when it comes to pain, and I think there's multiple reasons why this is, but pain, just like every other, it's an experience. It's a sensory emotional experience. You have to have an awake and alert brain functioning, a functioning nervous system. There are physiologic changes with it. Your body acts differently. The stress uh, chemistry in your body is different. Your heart is different. I mean, all the, all this stuff works together, yet we're, you know, we're pulling out spines and chopping off legs and arms, right. and, and then we're shocked when it doesn't work. Right. Um, uh, unbelievable. unbelievable. I know. It, well, I think the hard part for you and I, Kevin, is that we've watched so many patients go to pain-free with just calming down the nervous system. I mean, you change the body's physiology, so it's not psychological. See, what people say, well, the pain's in my head is psychological. That's not true. So what it does, it translates into changes in the body's chemistry. And when your body is under elevated cortisol, histamines, and adrenaline for, for prolonged periods of time, your, your body's being assaulted by these stress hormones. You're under assault. And they talk about these called medically unexplained symptoms. That's not true. I hate that word because they're completely explained by changes in the body's chemistry, the physiology. And what's, what's completely illogical is that they, this bone spur is going to cause so much widespread pain. It's just been there for a long time. Nothing's changed. A bone spur might have been there five years. The pain started two years ago. People aren't, aren't asking the right question. The other scenario, which may be a topic of another podcast, is that people undergo horrible, all of us do, situational stresses. And let's say that bone spur has been sitting there for a long time, and all of a sudden you had a son commit suicide, which unfortunately is relatively common. That's devastating. And so your body chemistry changes dramatically. That bone spur that was asymptomatic before is going to be the first thing to become symptomatic because it's a low abnormal. Your pain threshold has now changed. And so what we found out is we help people get through the stress and the trauma as the body chemistry changes back more towards normal pain goes away. Bone spur or not is again about the nerve conduction, the body chemistry, the ability to cope with the pain. So this, this is not a matter of just living with the pain. With the body chemistry changes, people's pains go away. So it's incredibly difficult for us to watch people's physiology get normalized by pretty simple tools versus having the additional trauma of surgery that has essentially no chance of working be done at a huge rate. If we took a 20th or less of the money spent on surgery just towards doing the simple things that we know are effective, medicine would change dramatically. Absolutely. And and what I, I think you would also tend to see is what we've seen in our region is good pain care is good health care. And if you start Correct. if you start addressing the pain and all of those contributors, all the things that people typically you know, they'll say, oh, my pain's worse when because I'm fighting with my spouse or, I, yeah, I recognize that this and this and this. But as soon as you want to bring that connection, people can get very mad. But when we start treating those extra stressors, 
not only it's not just pain; it's health gets better as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And one I mean, way, going, back, going, going back to the very beginning of this whole process, and the essence of solving chronic pain is actually feeling safe. Because when you feel safe, your body's full of oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin, these great drugs. When you've optimized your body's chemistry, your body changes dramatically. Your sense of well-being goes up, your contentment goes up, your body's organs respond differently. There's a completely different state of body chemistry than being stressed. So that's the essence of the entire project, by the way, is feeling safe, which includes, by the way, your doctor-patient relationship and talking to our patients. But that's the whole key is that you learn to feel safe with yourself, with your providers, with your family. Life changes dramatically. So it is, it's a whole person response, which is, by the way, not very hard to accomplish. And I, I also say that, that, that safeness, that you know, helping people to feel safe is relevant whether it's a acute pain or a persistent pain. Correct. And if you're in, if you're going in, and you know, if there is a structural uh, contributor, wouldn't it make sense to optimize that condition? Which again, what is one of the things I love about your book is there you talk about prehabbing, and right. optimizing it before you go into that surgery, so that you're optimizing your potential outcomes out of there. And that doesn't make sense while we're not doing that on a widespread scale. Well, again, like I said before, this is all supported by the data. That's what the, that's what the data says to do. That we, we've known about the risk factors for poor outcome for decades. There's a paper out of Baltimore in 2014 that showed that only 10% of surgeons are acknowledging those risk factors before they do surgery. Then it doesn't make any sense. I mean, as you know, surgeons often ask patients to have MRI scans and stuff like that before they see the surgeon on the first visit. Because the surgeon wants to make the decision whether to do whether to do surgery on the first visit. You gotta spend at least three months getting to know your surgeon. This is a big deal. And so it makes there's no urgency, there's no rush for elective surgery. Your surgeons are walking in and out, making really quick decisions, and they don't know you. They don't know your life, they don't know what's going on. And again, your environment, if you're really having some big major losses and financial losses or whatever, it really affects your body's chemistry. That is not psychological. So feeling safe with your providers is a huge step in this whole process. And, you know, prehab is actually getting to know your surgeon, going through the steps. We wanted to do the rehab before surgery for at least eight to 12 weeks before every elective surgery. And in my major spawn to forming surgeries, which are eight to 10 hours each, I mean, I honestly, like I said before, would prehab them for a year, sometimes two years before we did the operation. And we didn't have nearly the complication rate. Results were really excellent makes a huge, huge difference in outcomes by just calming everything down first before you do the operation. And it, and it makes so much sense. I know everybody wants to, to rush. And if you're experiencing, you know, s- severe pain, you want a quick fix. But in the same token, I would think that most people would want a, a good outcome rather than some quick, quick action being done. Right. But again, I'll say this again, the, the emphasis being though people just don't comprehend how bad your life can be really completely destroyed by failed spine surgery it, it's just horrible what happens and, and as you know i was seeing three to five patients every week having their lives actually destroyed by surgery that was done on normal spines and i saw so many people getting better the contrast became intolerable for me so i actually quit my practice i loved my practice teaching fellows etc and uh i just couldn't watch it anymore and, and I know you, you you have the same story. I mean, we have very similar stories that way. It's that you're watching people go through injection after injection after injection, no results. And people go, well, what's going on? And it's hard to watch. 
Oh, it's it's extraordinarily hard, and I th- I do think some from a from the physician standpoint, I think sometimes that they they choose not to believe because that's a to to believe that and to understand that data. I, I even say believe. I, well, believe the data, but actually look at the data and trust the data and be like a good physician and scientist should and, tr- and know, well, look at that. That's what the data says. Right. Um, that could be life-altering. And, and it certainly, from a, a physician standpoint, there's some guilt that goes along with that when you realize what you've been doing. Right. Um, and I think sometimes that people aren't willing to cross that bridge. Um, right. But right. that's a different, a different podcast episode. Different for podcast. Sure. But anyway, I'm going to I want I know I've, I've taken up a lot of your time today, David. And um, but I just want to emphasize again to the listeners out here. This is if you are in any way considering back surgery or if you have a loved one who is considering back surgery, it makes sense to get informed. The book is Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Surgeon's Advice. It's available on Amazon. Again, there's free resources at Dr. Hanscom's website, backincontrol.com, including that treatment grid, which we've been referencing. I also have the treatment grid at straightshothealth.com forward slash grid. And what I, what I would want to emphasize and what, what Dr. Hanscom again just said at the end here is you have time with this stuff. Basically, if it's an elective procedure, you know it's elective because if you walked into your surgeon's office and they allow, are allowing you to walk out of their office again, that's an elective operation which means you have time to get educated to start the process. So Dr. Hansom, if you any last words or of wisdom for our listeners here? You know, just spend as much time researching this as you would buying a house or a car. I mean, this is much bigger deal, a hundred times bigger than buying a car or a house even. And just really understand what's going on. Absolutely. And I think that is a, a very wise because we spend people tend to spend more time buying their car than they would making these choices about back surgery. Right. So with that, everybody, thank you all for joining us today. And until next time, stay well. Stay well.